Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 22nd, almost done with half the year. 2017. Chase Bank. We started covering their lies and gyrations to avoid scrutiny from regulators, all contained in a major RICO lawsuit by some people who were sold loans that they say were already sold to trusts. Today, we are lucky and honored to have as our guest, Attorney Brent Tantillo, of Tantillo Law, a former prosecutor who is the attorney pressing RICO charges against Chase Bank. This is the tip of the iceberg, folks, not only for Chase, but for all of the too-big-to-fail banks. Brent will discuss the RICO claims against Chase and the broader ramifications for the industry. Of course, one of the things I'm looking for that might be interesting would be the potential chase defense that they didn't really sell the loans to the investors or they didn't really sell the loans to the trusts, which, of course, is directly contrary to what they told the world. So... I, for one, am very interested to see what comes up in this case, and Brent Tantillo is going to tell us a little bit about the history up to date. So, yeah, it would be hard remember, to... Excuse me? No, no, I'd be happy to. I apologize for interrupting. That's all right. Not a problem. Remember, the same trusts went to court as the mortgagees or beneficiaries on a deed of trust and sought and obtained for sale of homesteads of thousands of Americans. Also joining us are Charles Marshall, attorney in California, and Bill Padalo, private investigator and forensic analyst. Good afternoon to you in the western time zones, and good evening to those in the east. Um, Brent is a little bit of both because he's currently in Phoenix, Arizona. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show up on my studio board that you are waiting with a question. The money trail, the paper trail, what's the difference? The RICO case against Chase reveals the result of investigations showing that Chase was misrepresenting its ownership of loans, big surprise, right, 
and asserting whatever rights they wanted to uh, to suit the situation. Their inconsistent actions with lawsuits and disputes with the FDIC over the WAMU uh, supposed uh, uh, purchase, as well as multiple other regulators have shown them to be guaranteed liars because if you put everything together that they keep saying, something has to be untrue because they're totally inconsistent. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, 202-838-NEIL, N-E-I-L, which is our main number, but not the number to reach this show. And pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if my other work has had value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Brent S. Tantillo is the managing partner of Tantillo Law with offices in New York, Washington, and Coconut Creek, Florida. Brent is very well acquainted with high-stakes lawsuits often involving government and internal investigations, whistleblower actions, and other federal regulatory matters. Brent has extensive experience in handling disputes relating to health care, fraud, money laundering, the Bank Secrecy Act, RICO, and the False Claims Act, also known by some as KETAM. He worked for 10 years for the United States Department of Justice, serving as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of Florida from 2006 to 2016. Brent led the Southern District of Florida's Human Trafficking Task Force from 2006 to 2010 where he coordinated the efforts of over 40 non-governmental organizations and law enforcement agencies in rooting out human slavery. Brent also prosecuted cases involving public corruption, organized crime, and drug and sex trafficking. He also served as counsel and legislative assistant in the United States House of Representatives in 2005 to 2006, where he drafted legislation on tax matters, banking, energy, environmental, and judicial issues. Brent Tantillo, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Neil. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners today about uh, the different cases that um, I'm working on. And I hope that uh, this information is useful to them. Well, that's the um, point. We try to get as much right. free information out there as possible. So right. um, before, before we get started on the particulars of the RICO action 
uh, you have against Chase and some of your other cases. I have a question for you. Actually, I meant to do it before the, we went on the air. Um, any insights you have as to why DOJ did not bring criminal or civil action against Chase and the other two big-to-fail banks, or more to the point that I'm curious about, was there a government policy to leave the banks alone because of the perception uh, the perception was that we needed to get them through the economic crisis that the banks created? Well, my perspective of it is I really think it was more to do with the fact that there's just a revolving door between DOJ and the large law firms that represent the banks. I mean, Eric Holder is a perfect example. I mean, you know, he's a senior partner at Covington and Burling, and you know, lo and behold, Covington and Burling is the ones that are representing Chase in the cases, um, you know, that I'm prosecuting currently. Uh, I really think that it's a situation where it, it's really unfortunate that, you know, so many people who work at DOJ, they come for a short time, you know, they spend three or four years there, and then they leave, and, you know, they go to work basically for the banks. And my view is that there is a... Um, sort of institutional problem with, um, you know, prosecutors going to work uh, for major financial institutions. And um, so that would be my my sort of take on it. Uh, I do think that there's, you know, there's not enough prosecutors that sort of continue to, uh, after they leave at DOJ, to continue to sort of work for justice. Um, you know, the money is, is very attractive at a large law firm. And you know, with the credentials that most of these folks have when they're at DOJ, you know, with the fancy law schools and the fancy courtships and all that, um, you know, they naturally are recruited um, by the banks to uh, continue to um, do what banks do, which is basically find legal loopholes uh, to uh, prevent, you know, consumers and homeowners from being able to, you know, really assert their rights. And that's my perspective about it. I mean, you know, I, I just think that there's, it, it kind of goes back to, and it doesn't really matter how, what you think of him, but sort of this idea of needing to kind of drain the swamp um, that Donald Trump talks about. Uh, it, it, there's just, there's an institutional problem with the revolving door in, in D.C. and among the, uh, you know, different departments. And, you know, the incentives are just too high for people to really, take on a case against the banks and uh, you know which is one of the reasons why you know Larry sort of came to me and came to uh, my firm you know is because you know there's not a lot of large law firms that really want to uh, sue a bank <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know we, we, we built a, a tight uh, shop that's able to provide um, sort of unique services to uh, homeowners and people that are in foreclosure and we do a lot of FDCPA practice and uh, FCRA practice and TILA. But, you know, it's very difficult. Once you are sort of perceived to be anti-bank, you are, are sort of considered persona non grata among, you know, the large firms. And uh, Yeah, tell course, me about it. I went to a, uh, a seminar some years back, uh, actually when I was first getting started on this subject, and it was just a seminar for lawyers regarding foreclosure. And I sat down and 
next to a lawyer who was there, and I introduced myself as I normally do uh, when I go to a seminar and sit down next to somebody just to be friendly. And the response was, I know who you are. And he moved away. <laughs> exactly. You know, that, that's, the, that's the problem. But, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, it really is a concern of mine is that it, with all of the various Wall Street regulations that sort of occurred uh, post-2008 and 2009, like Dodd and Frank and such, you know, the smaller sort of community banks and the credit unions and also, um, you know, organizations like um, my client Larry Schneider has, um, you know, it really has made it much more difficult for them to comply because all of these regulations were really written for them in mind and not for, um, you know, perhaps a small community bank who really does want to help out, you know, people and provide, you know, a real service. And so as you've seen, you know, the, the big banks have just gobbled up, you know, all your sort of hometown or Main Street type of operations. And now you have a Chase or the Bank of America or a city or Wells Fargo, and that's it on every corner. Um, you know, and I think that's really unfortunate because, you know, those banks don't have any real connection with the community at all. And, you know, it's much easier to foreclose on somebody when you don't really know them. Um, and, I, and I really do think that's a big part of the problem is I, I think that, you know, these, a lot of these uh, regulations and sort of too big to fail type regulations have really made it much more difficult for, you know, smaller type operators to, you know, do the work they need to do. Um, so that's, you know, it, it's not that I'm anti-bank. I'm just anti, I, I don't like the idea of, of banks, you know, I'm yeah, sorry. I, I, you're preaching to the choir here. I've made a point uh, frequently that uh, I think you were about to say it, the same thing, uh, that I'm not against banks. I'm against the banks that did this to us, and the other 7,000 community banks, credit unions, savings and loan, et cetera, I'm all for, because they wouldn't have sold bad loan products to borrowers. They wouldn't just go for foreclosure as opposed to a workout, which was absolutely standard in the industry, until they did this so-called securitization thing. Um, right. In the lawsuit, you basically show uh, state that Chase violated the Real Estate uh, Settlement Procedures Act, the Truth in Lending Act, the FTC Act, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Fair Housing Act. Right. How are you doing with uh, uh, discovery so far? I know you're in the middle of a uh, – you've taken time out from your schedule uh, to be on the show in the middle of a deposition out in Phoenix. How are you doing right. now with uncovering the truth? Well, I mean, most of the allegations that are within our RICO statement as well as the, um, the statements that are in our complaint are – I mean, we wouldn't have put them in there because we're on our fourth amendment complaint unless we had evidence. So we've done very well in being able to obtain the requisite evidence to show that uh, there was a RICO enterprise 
as well as obviously the loans that they sold us were um, not really just junk, but they were um, they, they they were they just weren't being serviced in, in the appropriate way. So yeah, we I mean we're very excited about the type and the level of discovery we received, and and part of that's a testament to um, Magistrate Judge James Francis, who has really been excellent in, in sort of assisting us and making sure that we've been able to obtain the requisite discovery. Um, but you know, I, I do think it's uh, it, it's been a it's been a fascinating process. I mean, there's still significant amounts of discovery that uh, we're hoping to receive. Um, we've probably received uh, at least a half a million documents. Um, and, you know, of course, many of those documents are, you know, uh, we're not mean documents, I mean individual files. So we're probably talking about millions of pages of documents. Um, and, of course, thousands of spreadsheets that are extremely voluminous. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, well, it has been a bearing process. There's no doubt about that. And, um, you know, fortunately nowadays with the aid of, uh, you know, sort of cloud-based computer software, you know, you're able to search through these things using, you know, key terms and, you know, it has made it so much easier. Um, you know, when I was a prosecutor, uh, people would go do search warrants and you, you just have boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff and you had to just literally go through it with FBI agents, you know, I mean, just, you know, piece by piece, paper by paper. And unfortunately those days are kind of over. Um, so that's been, that's been a beneficial aspect of modern technology. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, we, I think that we feel very strongly about our position and, and where we are in this case. And one of the things that really kind of pulled it all together was when we had a, uh, deposition of, uh, Joseph Smith, who was the monitor of the national mortgage settlement as well as a monitor of the uh, residential mortgage-backed security settlement. Um, that was last February or March. And, you know, he really sort of connected the dots for us. Um, I mean, he, he, was, he was very truthful in kind of what, what the processes were um, in terms of, uh, you know, the fact that they were using these uh, loans that were in recovery um, as a way, as basically only bases for them to get government credit against the settlements. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a document actually that is publicly available and I could send to you, um, for your website, but it's a remarkable deposition. I, I think that just in terms of what's there and what, uh, sort of shows, you know, kind of the motivating factor, um, for the banks in terms of yeah, I'd like they, to see that and, and publish it yeah, on most the uh, web. Most um, so let's say I was a nine-year-old looking to learn with crayons. How would you describe what Chase did to provoke you into filing a massive lawsuit like this? Well, I think simply what happened was, and what sort of got us, was it was that the was sort of a massive violations of federal law and servicing standards. Um, and the fact that Chase made a decision rather than actually assisting homeowners, and this is one of the issues that uh, my client, Lord Schneider, he filed a, a key TAM case in the District of Columbia. Um, his whole concern was, was that the banks, and, and all the banks, it's not just Chase, 
um, have set up, you know, recovery departments where, you know, once your loan goes into the recovery department, it's, you know, like I, I think I told you before, um, it, it's kind of like a prison. Like, you're never going to receive a loan modification. You're never going to receive another call, I mean, unless they're trying to collect debt from you. You're never going to receive a, any kind of monthly statements. You're never going to receive anything. And I think so what ends up happening is, um, you know, it's remarkable that the people who really need the help the most, the people whose loans were charged off, the people who really need their loans to be serviced are the ones that are not being serviced. And, and so, and these are loans that where the unpaid principal balance is really negative. Like you're kind of underwater in their house, for example. So you couldn't sell it for, um, you know, for any amount that would ever get you to paying, you know, chase off. So, it's just it's just crazy. I think for us, you know, once we sort of saw that, and once we saw that there was this, um, as we, I think we said in the complaint, like a warehouse basically, of or uh, of loans that are never going to be sort of seen again. Um, you know, it, I think that was really for us. It was we, we just realized that all these government settlements that were supposed to help people, all they did was help the banks. They got a bunch of debt they never wanted to see again off their books, and even better yet. They're able to use that debt, you know, in many cases, dollar for dollar. Um, if the loan was worth $100,000, well, okay, you're getting $100,000 credit against your obligation to the United States. And not, not for us, it's just, you know, it's unconscionable. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, one of the reasons why we filed the cases. It, it's just, you know, the public needs to know uh, my client, Lawrence Schneider, is extremely passionate about this issue, extremely passionate about trying to help homeowners. I mean, his business model is exactly what you just said, Neil, earlier, is that, you know, he works every single loan he has, you know, people pay him for is, is, is a true modification. Um, you know, you ask people, how much can you pay on a monthly basis? I understand you can't pay $1,000 a month. Can you pay 500 You know, how much would it cost for you to rent a house instead of keep staying in your own home? And, you know, we, we all really feel passionately about trying to um, – preserve a system that allows us to do that. I mean, he's basically doing the servicing that the, that the major servicers won't do. It sounds like. That's correct. That's hundred percent correct. And, you know, so, what's unfortunate about it was. Yeah. So just to backtrack a little bit. Uh, so they were, so Chase is using uh, loans, which let's just skip the ownership part, uh, as currency with which they could pay taxes 100 cents on the dollar for loans that were essentially dead. Well, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's taxes, but they were. They were. Yeah, they were liabilities owed to the government. That's that's correct. Yes, they were liabilities. Yeah, the the national mortgage settlement, I believe, was thirteen billion, or it may have been less, and then the RNDS settlement was something very similar. But yes, that's exactly right. I mean, in effect, um, you know, they were getting dollar for dollar credit for loans that were worthless to them. It wasn't worthless to my client, Mr. Schneider. In fact, he knew how to do workarounds with the borrowers and and, and did very well um, with that until Chase actually decided to release a thousand of his liens. <laughs> so uh, that that definitely made matters much more difficult for him, 
And uh, the reason why they did that was because they weren't in compliance with Regulation X. When the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you know, changed the rules and required mortgage servicers to, um, you know, provide additional servicing requirements, Chase was like, well, we're not doing that. So we're just going to lien release immediately and then send everything to, um, to uh, you know, basically, you know, they're going to be a deficiency balance. We can collect on a deficiency. Um, but the problem was, was that their systems of record weren't equipped to actually notate the fact that they had sold these loans to somebody else many, many years before. And that's where, um, you know, Larry got hit really bad. And, you know, that's a big part of what our case is about. But what's fascinating about it is the why. Why did they do it? Well, they did it because they knew they couldn't be in compliance with, you know, the requisite servicing standards. And that's not something that they're denying uh, at all. Um, and in fact, when, when I send you the monitor deposition, you know, he straight out says that's why they did it. You know, he gave them the green light to do it. You know, the monitor of the National Mortgage Settlement said, yeah, well, you know, what's the definition of a federally laid mortgage? Well, it has to be secured, right? It has to be owner-occupied. Well, if it's no longer secured, you know, then we can go ahead and not worry about Regulation X anymore. And that's exactly what happened. So when they decided to release literally, I don't know, a million, you know, 800,000 loans 700, in the 700,000 range, and you're talking about billions and billions of dollars of value, um, on the one hand, they got rid of all of the responsibilities and liabilities, things like property preservation, making sure the taxes are paid. And you can imagine what the impact on that is in communities like Detroit or Miami or Los Angeles. I mean, the impact is huge when, when you don't have property preservation being done. The impact is huge when you, you, know, you don't have taxes being paid. Um, and it's probably one of the reasons why these communities are in the financial shape they are, um, because this huge swath of America, you know, the banks have just said, you know what, we're washing our hands. But you know, what the banks called is a walk. They, they walk away from the property. And that's what they did here. They walked away. You know, so they walked away from their responsibilities, but at the same time, they got government credit for doing so. And it's pretty remarkable. So, um, I'm not sure if I understand the answer to my question here. <clears throat> Maybe I'm confusing myself. If the loans were used as currency to pay yeah. or relieve chase of obligations, Correct. then is the government entity, is some government entity the new creditor on, uh, let's say, the debt? Forget the note. No, the, the incentive was for them to release the lien and then – but even releasing the lien doesn't mean you release the debt. It just means you release the lien. So if the lien is gone, Chase has no responsibility for it anymore, and at that point in time, they're able to take credit for it against these various settlements. So you know, the evidence that we've seen is that they didn't necessarily forgive the debt, but they did release the lien. So they were okay. I, I'm getting it now. So they were releasing the lien on alleged loans that had mm -hmm. already been sold uh, or allegedly sold to Remick Trusts. Well, the the trust actually owned the loan first, usually, 
Right. What happened was most of the trust at that point in time, you know, Chase was merely just servicing these loans. Now, were the trust associated, you know, were they some, were the JPMC securities that were, you know, were the original, or the originator of the trust? Probably in many cases. However, we've seen examples of, you know, Deutsche Bank, um, you know, I mean, there's so many different examples. Of, so, but Chase was definitely servicing those loans. And then, um, you know, from the evidence that we've seen, is that you know Chase reached out to the trustees uh, and said, you know, well, actually the beneficiaries of the trustee, excuse me, and said, you know, is it okay if we get rid of these loans? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, so the trust themselves were certainly um, aware that they were doing this, but Larry, my client, wasn't aware that he was buying loans that were in trust, but he most certainly was. Okay, so. Uh, Based upon information other than your lawsuit and you, I'm told that those loans, some of those loans, went into foreclosure despite the fact that the lien was released. That's correct. So on the one hand, they were releasing the lien, and the other hand, they were foreclosing on it. Right. I, I think yeah, what's and that's definitely a possibility. Here, yeah, I think what's going on here, Neil and Brent, uh, at least in the non-judicial foreclosure states, is that when Chase or the other big players get their liability eliminated through the lien release, that explains partially why they've been so brazen and at, and at times uh, indifferent to the, the difficulty and the trauma they caused the borrowers in these non-judicial foreclosure uh, auctions. In other words, if their liability related to the lien is gone, they actually have an extra incentive to just take the property to sale to get it completely off their books. Yeah, I mean, that sounds reasonable to me. I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, there's definitely been examples of that, and, and in fact, there were. I mean, I know Larry had examples of properties being in foreclosure, but uh, you know, even before they were owned by Chase, where they subsequently. Well, the worst yet was bankruptcy. I mean, bankruptcy was a disaster. I mean, there were tons of um, loans that they should never have touched. That were, you know, where people had worked out um, resolutions of bankruptcy, and you know, they went ahead and you know, mean released them. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's remarkable. Um, yeah. So yeah, both scenarios are are, are definitely uh, out there. Yeah, so, it's important for borrowers to know. Well, yeah, yeah, it is. Very. I mean, and, and the right. And the biggest problem too you have is you, you know, obviously. I mean, we talked. I mean, it kind of goes back to you know the whole issue of chain of title. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to determine. You know who really is servicing the loan, who really owns the loan. Um, I have a client who has a case like that right now, and it's extremely difficult um, to really determine unless you dig deep in the discovery process. You know, regarding you know who's the real beneficiary here, and who's the real trustee, and who's really behind all this because there's somebody behind it. You know, uh, pushing the foreclosure, but you. They certainly don't want to tell you who it is. They'll say, oh, it's SPS or it's, you know, somebody else, you know. But the reality is there is somebody there who's, who's driving the train, um, but the banks don't want you to know who it is. 
Precisely. Well, I think the, according to my information and my analysis, the one who's driving the train is the party identified as the um, underwriter who is also the master servicer of the Remick Trust. So, like, for example, I've got a case pending now where uh, we already won the trial. We're arguing over fees. And uh, uh, Wells Fargo is the real party that had anything going in this case because they were piling up uh, claims on what they're calling servicer advances that was really money that they had from investors that they were giving back to them as though it was an advance from the servicer. So, but they never appeared in the litigation except accidentally in one pleading where they gave a payoff amount. The, um, so you've got those parties and then you've got your, um, your supposed servicer who produced inexplicably a power of attorney to act as servicer executed by someone on behalf of Chase when Chase also not only had nothing to do with the case and was never mentioned before, but also had nothing to do with the loan or the claims of securitization. And so now, and and during the case, we had mediation and things like that, and it was impossible to get anybody with authority to go to mediation. That's because Wells Fargo wouldn't show up. U.S. Bank certainly didn't know anything what was going on. The trust itself was right. empty. And right. so Wells Fargo... Uh, had several layers, and they just couldn't respond even when my client offered to pay the whole thing off. And yeah, so but but my the answer to the question is I think in almost all cases the where there's any claim or possibility that a remix trust is somewhere in you know in the background or the foreground uh, the one who's pulling the strings the one who's uh, uh, making the assessment on how it will be litigated etc is the master servicer who is also the underwriter and who sold securities purportedly issued by the empty trust which is a whole other thing which uh, uh, only complicates things and that's that's why Brent I, I mentioned to you before we went on air that they typically and successfully use complexity in order to overwhelm a homeowner or the homeowner's attorney who frankly doesn't have the resources or time to right. like you said you know read every document in a a dump of that may be you know thousands or even millions of pages uh long can try yeah, that's right. go ahead i'm sorry 
Charles? Right. I was just saying that I, I always call that contrived complexity, and it absolutely drives virtually everything that the institutional players do. You know, be they the, uh, the nominal trust holders like Deutsche Bank or the servicers like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, SPS, SLS. Um, the goal is to to make the the assignment chain and the the movement of legal documents so Byzantine and complex that it's impossible to unwind, and that's the that's the ultimate contrivance there. Brent, where, where do you think the well, which of the many uh, federal acts that you make reference to in your complaint, the FDCPA, uh, FCRA, et cetera, uh, which of those or what group of those do you think have the most traction for people who want to sue for damages uh, uh, for an illegal or wrongful foreclosure? You know, I, I'm starting to see a lot more movement with RESPA, and I really think it's a good idea. You know, RESPA uh, even has the ability to, uh, in the event you're in foreclosure, to uh, file a temporary restraining order. Um, you know, the, the FDCPA and uh, – well, FCRA has a little more teeth. The FDCPA usually, um, you know, a lot of foreclosure, um, uh, you know, sort of rocket dockets you're starting to see, um, certainly in Florida – um, yeah, it doesn't seem to have the same kind of teeth because um, you're dealing with sort of, uh, you know, sort of incidental issues that sort of rise to a really you know high level. But I do think that um, in terms of you know actually trying to go after them for improper servicing, um, these are the kind of issues we we're talking about where you really don't have no clue who owns the loan, you know, whether or not there's proper assignments, that kind of thing. I, I do think there's some teeth there with that, and I've been seeing some more movement. Uh, in that area, and it's going to be an area that I'm going to start uh, exploring and working myself um, more. Um, you know, I, I, that's my opinion about it. I mean, my experience with FDCPA and um, FCRA and you know, is that it doesn't, you know, a court are like, yeah, you know, some bad stuff happened here. You know, they didn't do necessarily a great job in terms of, you know, sending you billing statements and that kind of thing, or the, or the statements are all messed up. Um, you know, but a lot of times they're like, well, you can take that up, you know, on your own different case, you know, that, that's, that, you know, the foreclosure is still going to go forward because you, you know, didn't pay the money. And so, um, I, I do think the kind of issues we're talking about with sort of these Byzantine assignments and such, you know, deserve some, you know, a, a hard look at some of the mortgage servicing laws because a lot of those too are what, what banks really worry about. Do you? Um, I, I realize that you uh, uh, bring actions for money damages for the benefit of a homeowner sure. or any injured party, an investor. Uh, yeah. Do you do foreclosure defense as well? It's not an expertise of, of my practice. I'm mostly a federal practitioner. Um, we do right. have several cases pending right now in various courts where we've been. Um, suing, you know, uh, very large banks for 
violations of the type of laws we just spoke about. Um, but in terms of foreclosure practice, it, it's not an expertise of mine. It's because mostly I'm a federal practitioner, and all the years I was at DOJ was mostly federal. Um, but you know, obviously there may be times in which uh, a case you know sort of rises to that level, and and, and I really do like the idea of trying to help out homeowners who um, have been, you know, uh, sort of victimized by violations of these federal laws and, and, and trying to stop foreclosures. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to uh, do the foreclosure case itself, but, um, you know, we, we do have some really good cases right now where we're, uh, you know, the servicing of the loans and the amounts that they say that are owed and all that are just, you know, ridiculous and atrocious. So, um, you know, I, I'm definitely interested in taking on those kinds of cases and, um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, we're eager to continue working on at our firm. But you know, most of the people who work with me are, are mostly federal practitioners. All right. Uh, and I um, imagine, Brent, I was just going to say, I imagine, Brent, that you, it sounds like you have a deep uh, experience with discovery procedure, and that's something that, uh, I could see benefiting, you know, even state court practitioners around the country. If you ever do right. consultancy work with other attorneys for other cases, I could see that being something that, that would be very useful to the foreclosure community. Yeah, no, I mean, that's something that uh, I, we would definitely be willing to uh, assist and obviously just individual homeowners who, many of whom, you know, find that, they even have to do go pro se, um, you know, that's something that, you know, we would definitely be willing to assist. I mean, you know, for me, you know, I, I do represent uh, some smaller, you know, companies and smaller typing banking institutions, but, you know, we, we, we have a very strong passion for just trying to help um, people in these circumstances. And, you know, I, it's not like, you know, well, if you're not paying me money, we're not going to return your call because we will. And uh, we're trying to do what we can to assist. Oh, that's really excellent. I don't know if I, I don't know if I have your cell number in front of me or your business number, and I don't want to give your cell number out. What number could people call in order to contact your office? Um, they can contact seven eight six five zero six two nine nine one. Okay, then I did have the main business number. Okay. <laughs> um. And the uh, website is Tantillo Law, T-A-N-T-I-L-L-O-L-A-W.com, TantilloLaw.com, which is a pretty good website, by the way, in terms of explaining who's who's on board there and what they do. Um, thank you. Brent, I want to thank you. I want to thank you first for appearing tonight. Uh, uh, it was really good having you, and I hope that uh, you'd be willing to come back so we could uh, flesh out some issues that we weren't able to get tonight. And, Most definitely. And thank you. Good. Good. And thanks, of course, to Charles Marshall and to Bill Padalo. Uh, for being uh, with us tonight and adding to the conversation. Uh, you can, uh, for listeners, you can 
go to my website to download the RICO complaint and presumably the deposition that Brent is sending to me. Thank you very much, and good night. We'll talk next week. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Neil. Thanks, Brent. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Michelle. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.